The story this morning reminded me of uh, camping this year. For the first time in our family life, we went camping this summer, which isn't actually totally true because we went, we went camping one other time when Maddie was a baby. And so Lauren um, is not a camper. She comes from a family that's non-camping family. My family was a camping family, so I talked her into going camping. I thought we could do this as a family, and so we took our newborn baby to a heat wave, and we went camping in a tent in a heat wave. And so in the night, our baby cried, wee, 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 throughout the campground. You could hear her crying, her loud voice echoing through the campground, and it was not a good experience. And so uh, we resolved... <laughs> Not to do it again. <laughs> Together, we resolve that. And so, um, so this summer, we, we talked about it, and we said, well, the kids are a little bit older. Now maybe it'll be different. So we tried to do this. So we went actually with another family, the Glezos family. So they're planting Tri-City Church, and they were here with us for a little while. And their kids are all the same ages, five kids, and we have five kids. And so all our kids are the same age. And so we thought this this could work. So we went and we planned to go for a couple nights and we thought, well, maybe we could do three nights. Let's just see. And we stayed for all three nights and it was such a great experience. All the kids had such a great time. We went swimming, we went biking, there's bikes and there was stuff and they were just busy and having fun the whole time. It was great. So, so 10 kids, four adults on two sites. It was awesome. Now, the problem with things like this is that it is so good And if it is so good, then you want to stay longer, don't you? But what happens if you stay longer? I thought about it. What would happen if we stayed longer? We got to the end of three nights, and we thought, oh, maybe we should stay longer. And then we thought, what's going to happen if we stay longer? This is what's going to happen. More relational conflict (laughs) is the first thing that's going to happen. We are going to, we're not, the kids are going to start fighting. They're going to get cranky and complaining. A second thing that's going to happen is there's going to be more physical discomfort, The tent trailer bed is not going to be as awesome as it was the first three nights. After night five or night six or however many nights you decide or resolve to stay. And there's more irritation. We just, I think gradually we would become more and more irritated with all of the chaos in the campsite. Now the fun disappears and you wish you'd left sooner. So your choice is either you leave when it's good and you don't want to leave, or you leave when it's bad and you wish you'd left before then. Comedian Jim Gaffigan jokes that um, his wife tried to get him to go camping by saying that it's a family tradition in her family. And he responds, it was a tradition in everyone's family until we came up with the house. (laughs) Now we have houses. We don't need to go camping. And I think Lauren would agree with that, that we weren't made for camping, at least for very long. Our story fits this picture. And if you just think about those ideas as we read our story, uh, I think you'll find they fit. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 28 to 36. So I'll read the the first line out of last week's message. It says, in verse 27, Jesus says to the disciples, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then we enter verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. 
And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. This is what Luke adds. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son. This is my son. How's the voice in the cloud sound? This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. James Earl Jones, right? So Darth Vader. God is not Darth Vader. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. Wild story. Wild story. Our big idea this morning is that we experience the glory of God to move us to mission. I'm listening to a new song that we just, I just heard. I happened upon it, and I liked it, and then the kids liked it, so then they played over and over and over. And it's a song by a band called Chainsmokers, which is a horrible name for a band. Or maybe it's a cool name for a band. I don't know. They're called the Chainsmokers, and Coldplay, the lead guy from Coldplay, sings on the song. And the first verse as I was preparing my sermon kept rolling around in my head. So I'm like, oh, get away. Come on. Get out of my head. And the verse goes something like this. It says, I've been reading books of old, the legends and the myths, Achilles and his gold, Hercules and his gifts, Spider-Man's control, and Batman with his fists. And clearly, I don't see myself upon that list. I don't see myself upon that list. I think most of us, if we were honest, we would agree that most of the time we can recognize we're not superheroes. We're not, we don't have that much going for us. And, you know, we wrestle with a lot of other things. Jesus, though, he says things like, who do the crowds say that I am? We just talked about this last week. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then he rolls with it when they proclaim him to be the Messiah. Jesus is not like us. Oh, he's human. He was human. He experienced human emotions, human things. He cried. He laughs. He feels discouraged or angry. He gets excited. But he's not just a guy with special gifts. Oh, he's that guy. He can heal people. Yeah, that's really cool. The disciples sense this. They know it because they stood in the boat when there was the storm, and Jesus calmed the storm, and they stood in awe and marveled. They know it because they watched him raise the dead. They know it because they took the bread that he broke and the fish that he tore and gave to them, and they ate until they were satisfied, along with the 5,000 other guys there. And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are God. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. Now, let's be honest. The gospel's weird. This message is weird. It's a bit strange. The message that God of the universe loves you. And that we owe God a debt called sin. But that God sent his son Jesus, who was also God, 2,000 years ago to pay the debt we owe. And he paid this debt by dying on a cross as a Roman criminal. 
And then he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, sending his spirit to come and live inside of us and live in us and change us to be more like him. Now, if that doesn't sound a little bit weird to you, then you need to go share your faith with some people who don't know about Jesus and look at their face when you tell them all that. Because it's a bit strange. It sounds a bit strange. Jesus is God. Jesus is the only way to God. Just say that at a party and see how that party dies. Our, we have cultural defeaters or things we believe as a culture that stand as obstacles in the way of these things that are, make it sound very, very strange. Jesus died and rose again. Now, this kind of idea that it feels strange or weird is as strange or weird as Peter saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Israel was waiting for the Messiah and they were looking for the Messiah. But for Peter to say, it's Jesus, that was weird. People said, Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth? We know where he's from. Jesus with the brothers and sisters? I know his sister. That's in the Bible. I know his brothers and sisters. Jesus? Jesus the carpenter? I have a table he made. It's like been 10 years, a little wobbly on one side now. Like, it can't be Jesus. Jesus? You're talking about Jesus? Jesus. And Jesus told a few of them after Peter proclaims this, he says, a few of you are going to experience the kingdom before you die. Not all of you. Some of you are going to die and you won't see it. But some of you will. And so those ones, Peter and James and John, they go up the mountain with him and they experience the glory. Jesus changes. His face is changed and he's dazzling and bright and they glimpse the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus is transfigured, he takes on the glory that is his in heaven. It says his facial appearance changed. In Matthew and Mark, it says transfigured. And Luke uses a different word. So he uses, he says his face was altered. It looked different. His clothes became dazzling white. The word means blinding or gleaming or like lightning. They're so bright. Moses and Elijah appeared with him. Like, how does anyone even know what they look like? Moses and Elijah, what? From way back? These guys, like the famous prophets, they're back? Standing on the mountain? John has an experience later on. He has a vision of heaven. And in his vision, this is what he says. There was someone in front of him, and he says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. John gets transported to heaven in a vision. He sees heaven, and then he sees Jesus. And his response when he sees Jesus is not, Hey, Jesus! I'm my friend Jesus! It's so good to see you. I've missed you. I've been on earth all this time. I didn't get to see you. Jesus, hey, let's hang. What are you doing right now? I know we're busy in heaven. Can we hang out a little bit? John. John, the beloved of Jesus, one of his best friends. Jesus had best friends. One of Jesus' best friends, when he sees Jesus in heaven, falls on his face and plays dead. 
He is so in awe at the appearance of Jesus, at the glory of Jesus. And we are meant to behold his glory. 2 Corinthians 3.11, Paul says, For if what, was, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And he's talking about the law. The law came and Moses went up the mountain and he got the Ten Commandments and he shone, his face was so bright, he went down and everyone said, oh, you're too bright, you're too brilliant. And so he took the law, this message of condemnation, you don't measure up, you'll never measure up, this is God's standard, and he brought it to the people and they couldn't look at him. There was so much glory. He put a veil on. And Paul says, if that had that much glory, how much more will what is permanent Will the face of Jesus, who's reconciled us, who saved us, whose kingdom is permanent, it doesn't end, it goes on and on and on forever. How much more glorious will he be? We're not meant to be just employees of this kingdom either. We're meant to be the bride, the bride of this radiant and glorious Jesus. Now, I've seen Lauren at her worst. I was hoping she'd be in Jubilee Kids today while I told this story, but she is here. So I'm going to go for it anyway. I've seen Lauren at her worst. I've seen her morning hair, which can be as wild as the sea some days. And I've seen her tired, and I've seen her discouraged, and I've seen her weeping. Tears accompanied by mucus. Weeping. Grieving. I've seen her sad. I've seen her in despair. And she's beautiful still in those moments. But I have also seen Lauren dressed to the nines. I've seen her in a party with a group of people all around her. And she, she shines. She's like radiant. Her friends say she sparkles. Because she's got this illumination that happens. And it is incredible to behold. I would say it's like her glory. It is the God image glory that shines in her in those moments. And I'm meant to behold it. We were made to behold the glory of Jesus. To see him, to experience it. Paul goes on in verse 18 to say, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He says, beholding. We see him with our heart right now. We will see him with our eyes then. We behold him, and as we are beholding him, we are being changed. We are being transformed. That doesn't come because I work really hard or I'm really good at being good. Or I'm, I deserve to be moral or some weird thing. It comes because I'm beholding the glory of God and I'm being changed. I am being changed. Now I think it's important, Paul says, we are being changed because we're human. We're human. Narnia has one of their books is called The Silver Chair. There's a whole series of books in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's not just the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And the one that always struck with me, this one story really stuck in my heart. Uh, Lots of them do, but this one particular. It's called The Silver Chair. And it's the story of these children are are in some part of Narnia, and they're looking for the prince who's gone missing. The prince of Narnia has gone missing. 
And so they're having all these adventures, and they're looking all over, and they run into this guy. And this guy explains to them, you know, he's with this other lady, and he explains that he is under an enchantment. And under this enchantment, he has this one hour every night where he goes crazy. And so the rest of the time, he's okay. But this one hour, he needs to be strapped to the silver chair because he turns into this creature who could kill people or hurt people or says all sorts of things, and it's super dangerous. And so he warns them, you know, you need to go away. And the kids say, no, no, we want to stay with you. We want to stay with you. And so finally, he says, okay, but strap me down. And he says, whatever I say, don't let me out of the chair. Because I can be wily, I've heard, I can be tricky. Don't let me out of the chair. No one's even supposed to hear or see me in it. And the children hide and they wait. And the hour comes and he sits in the chair and he's strapped down. And suddenly he says, I am Prince Rillian. I'm the missing prince. And I'm under an enchantment. And all the rest of the time, I, I don't know who I am. But this one hour, I know who I am. You need to let me off. You need to let me out. I need to get free. And the children don't know what to do. Is this a trick? What, what do we do? It's not. Prince Rillian lived his whole life asleep, except for that one hour when he's really awake. He remembers who he is. And in that place of being awake, they break the enchantment and he gets set free and he knows who he is and he goes to claim Narnia. But he's convinced himself he's delusional before that. That in that one hour, he must be deluded and the rest of the time he knows what's going on when in fact, it's swapped. The disciples aren't that impressive and they deal with this sleep issue as well. They fall asleep at really bad times. They fall asleep. They go up this mountain. They're supposed to be praying, and they fall asleep. And Jesus is transfigured, and he's talking with famous prophets of old, and they wake up halfway through. Or Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's going to die, and he invites his friends. He says, pray with me. He's in agony, and he's struggling. He sweats drops of blood, and he keeps having to go and wake them up because they keep falling asleep. They're like, oh, what's the big deal? I'm trying to pray. And they're falling asleep. Now, to be fair to them, maybe some of you or me have ever fallen asleep trying to pray. I don't know. I have. When I was younger, actually, these stories brought me great comfort because I felt so much guilt at trying to do my devotion sometimes, and, and I'd fall asleep, and I'd feel like I'm horrible. I must be horrible. Surely spiritual people can stay awake. And then I'd read this story and be like, well, the disciples, they didn't get it, and they were with him. So it gives me hope. We're sleepy. We live in a fog in our lives, I think, generally. We drift through life. We're struggling through our days, and we explain away the voices and the moments that proclaim we are sons and daughters of the king. We numb our hearts and that long for heaven. We say, no, 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 that can't be. But we long for something more. We lull ourselves with screens and reality TV and social media, we smother the promise that we are going to shine like, like the sun in its glory, and we settle for the glow of our iPad. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 6 says, So then let us not sleep as others do. Don't sleep like other people. We're all sleeping. Don't do it. Don't sleep. Let us keep awake and be sober. 
Or Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You guys, we perpetually battle sleepiness. And the sleepiness, when we're sleepy or sleeping, we cannot behold the glory of God, spiritually sleeping. We cannot behold the glory of God. And the Old Testament talks about the Israelites, their ears were stopped up and their eyes were blinded and their minds couldn't see. They were sleepy spiritually and they couldn't behold the glory of God. So our prayer, my prayer, one of your prayers needs to be, God, wake me. Wake me so that I can behold your glory. Keep me awake so that I can behold your glory so that I can see you and be transformed. As Moses and Elijah go to leave, Peter jumps in, he interrupts. They're about to go, and he can see they're leaving, and he jumps in with this awesome idea, this great idea. In fact, in the message it says, this is a great moment. Peter comes in, this is a great moment. This is so good, so good. Here's my idea. We're going to build three tents up on the mountain. It'll be super awesome. In case we aren't sure if this is a good idea or not, that Peter suggests, Luke fills us in because he adds on there. He didn't even know what he was talking about. (laughs) Luke's like, I know Peter. I interviewed him many times. And Peter will admit, he's an idea first guy. He didn't think about it. He just went for it. I got an idea. Okay, I'm going to share it right now. He's an idea guy. And he shares, and then Luke after is like, yeah, he was being a bit crazy in the moment. When I was in my second year of university, I lived in the, uh, in the summer I went, I had courses I had to take to complete my TESOL certificate. I was going to do teaching English as a second language, and so I had kind of summer courses. So I was driving back and forth from Mission, and one of my friends was living in, like, all empty dorms, and he lived in this one dorm with all these ESL students, and he kind of ran a program for them. But he said, there's so many of them, I actually could use another guy just living on the floor somewhere. You don't have to really do anything, but we'll give you free room and board. And I said, oh, awesome, cool. So I got to stay on campus at Trinity Western. And so I thought this was awesome. So I had lots and lots of time. I finished my work, and I'd have all sorts of time. And so I spent my time having quiet time, like spending time um, in worship, in, in listening to music and worshiping. And I had these like long, long periods of time. And then I'd spend time reading the Bible and there was no, there's no end. So I'd just read and then I'd study something and I'd read another book or do something. And it was so good. And then I'd have these prayer times where I'd pour out my heart before the Lord. And it was like, I could spend two hours just having these awesome, amazing times and feeling God's presence. And every once in a while, I get a knock on the door and someone would like be crying and they'd come into my room and they'd pour out their heart and I would pray. And wow, what I was just reading is exactly what you're going through here. Let me share this. And oh, it was life transforming. So it's really hard for me now when things are going a bit rough or when I'm in the spiritual doldrums not to think that the answer is a long two-hour uninterrupted quiet time back in the dorm. I'm going to drive back to Trinity. Where's that room? That was the holy room. That's the room where God met me. That's our tendency, though, isn't it? It's like we want to camp out there where we have an incredible moment or experience, or at the very least, we want to go back to that moment. It's so good. The glory and the mountain and the presence and the light and the certainty for the disciples as they see Jesus. So Peter's response of let's put up tents, let's stay here, let's never leave, is a pretty normal response. 
Some of you have had encounters with God. You could call them mountaintop experiences where it's like, wow, I had an experience with God. Maybe it was a conference you went to, and you were like, whoa, this is amazing. Or maybe it was a worship time. You went, and you felt the presence of God. Or maybe it was during renewal, and you had these experiences with the Holy Spirit affecting you, and you felt like, wow, I really sense God. And it really changed you, these moments in glory. And our response tends to be, I want to stay in this moment. Or... I want to go back to this moment. And once we move on, we keep thinking, if I could just go back to that moment, I could feel it all again, and I'll be sure again, and it will all be okay. And we keep wanting to return. But you know what? The kingdom wasn't coming on that mountain. There was a glimpse of it. The kingdom was coming in the cross. And the kingdom was coming in the empty tomb. And the kingdom was coming in the upper rooms when the Holy Spirit was sent and given. And then the kingdom was coming as they experienced persecution and went everywhere proclaiming good news. Peter makes plans. His plan is we're going to stay here. But Jesus and Moses and Elijah, that's like an awesome strategic planning team, I'd say. Moses and Elijah and Jesus are standing together and they're planning. What are they planning? Luke says they're planning his departure. You know what the word departure is in Greek? It's the word for exodus, his leaving, his going. And I don't think it's an accident that he uses the word, that word exodus, departure. Because the exodus, the story of the exodus in the Old Testament is the story of God's people who are enslaved to Egypt. And then God sends a deliverer to come and to call his people out. And then with signs and wonders and all these amazing things and a death, the lamb is killed, the blood put on the doorposts, the angel of death passes over, and the people of Israel come out to freedom. And they come out not alone, but God himself is leading them. He comes in the pillar and the cloud, and he leads his people out. Jesus is the deliverer who comes to give his life to rescue God's people and to lead them out. So if we're called to anything, it's not to campouts, but it'd be like to a cattle drive or something if we had to put some kind of word on it. Not that we're cattle. But we are going out. I have planned some alternate endings for this story, and I hope you'll indulge me. I like to do this. I think about things, how I would do it, and then usually God says teaches me something in that. So I have an alternate ending for this story that I prefer, that I would have chosen had I been God, which I'm not. And this is my alternate ending. Moses and Elijah leave. Jesus looks normal again. And then the disciples, so transformed by what they have seen, shining with glory, reflected glory, descend the mountain, changed forever. And they walk in power. And they heal the sick. And they cast out demons. And they glorify Jesus in their humility and their obedience. This is not the story. It's not even close to the story. There is a cloud, and an audible voice. And then they all come down the mountain. And then what happens next? 
If you read ahead, you would know the next story is about their failure to cast out a demon. And then the story after that is about their jealousy. And the story after that is about, they argue about who's the greatest. Sorry, I feel emotional because I feel like it's so me all the time. (laughs) This is who we are. This is what we do. If you were making this up, you wouldn't make this up. I wouldn't write this story about myself if I was making this up. I'd make me look way better than they do. Like, this is not a good story. Their own accounts don't make them look like superheroes. What's the deal? Why are we alive? Why were you born? Why do you have a life? And then why do you die? Westminster Catechism would say, what's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. That's why there are humans. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. St. Arrhenius says the glory of God is the human fully alive. Or maybe we could say awake. The human fully awake to him. That's the glory of God. The problem is we're so human. The problem is I'm so human. We struggle. We fall asleep. We doubt. We are afraid. We are unimpressive. We fail. We worship other things. And you know, when the disciples experience that cloud coming over them on the mountain and they're afraid, I think they should be afraid. That's the glory of God. God Almighty comes in the cloud. That's all always was in the Old Testament. The presence of God comes in the cloud. You run away. If you got, a, if you got anything wrong, you should run away from that cloud because you're going to die. They should be afraid. But you know what happens? The voice commends Jesus, and the voice points them to Jesus. Jesus is on the mountain with them. God says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And if it's Peter and James and John alone on the mountain, they should be afraid. But they're not. They're with Jesus. And that's that's who I'd want to be on the mountain with. That's who I want to be at the end with. When I go into the glory, the judgment seat of God, I want to go with Jesus. God's beloved son, the righteous one, their savior. And like Peter and James and John, my hope is pinned on Jesus. My hope is pinned on Jesus because the experience in the cloud didn't make them perfect. They went out and did everything wrong after that. But the experience in the cloud did make them trust Jesus more. And that's what changed. They began to trust Jesus more. And for us too. There's a story of a wealthy family, and they had this incredible collection of priceless art. Incredible. Like, everyone around the world knew about it. All the collectors knew about them. And they had an heir, a son to this wealthy family, and the son died at a young age. He was, you know, a young adult or whatever, and he died. And so when the the elder uh, family, the patriarch and matriarch of the family die, there is going to be a huge auction to, because there's no heir, so they're going to auction off all of this priceless art. And so collectors from all around the world show up. It's a huge, massive thing, and they have heard they knew the Rembrandts and the other guys. Like, I only know Rembrandt. It's an artist, so I'm like, so there's all these different art, and they all come, and they're so excited. They're salivating, and everyone's there in the art world. And the auctioneer gets up and he says, okay, you know, the first, um, you know, by uh, request of the family, the first piece of art we're going to sell is this portrait. And it's a portrait of the son of that family. 
And it's not done by a master painter. It's just like kind of unremarkable. It was like a sentimental painting. And so everyone's like, okay. And he starts the bidding. No one wants this picture. No one was here for this picture. And he starts lowering the price, lowering the price. And finally, there was a caretaker, a family caretaker, who knew the family and he knew the son. And so he said, oh, maybe I can get that for a sentimental, you know, to, just as a connection to this family. And so he got his card. And as the price is going down, he kind of was like, oh, I think I can afford that much. Okay. And he puts up his card. He's the only bidder. And they say, okay, yeah, you take this. Okay, good. Okay. And everyone else is like, okay, now let's get started. And then the auctioneer says, the auction's closed. And then the lawyer comes up and he says, I'd like to read the next stipulation in the will, which is that whoever buys the portrait of my son gets all of it. All of it. That's how it works. The ones who get Jesus get all of it. All of it. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 to 31 says, Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, that is your being changed, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're not boasting in ourselves. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our great hope. Jesus, it's his glory we boast in, not our glory. It's his, because he is everything to us. So what does this story mean for you and me? What, what does it mean that Jesus was transfigured on that mountain? Well, I think Mark chapter 16. So it's the end of the story, Mark's story. At the very end, Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. And he's appeared, and now he's going back to heaven. And so he says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. This is the story. I mean, Mark's summarizing because the Holy Spirit comes and then they start preaching. But he's summarizing the story. This is the story. Jesus goes to heaven. They have seen Jesus glorified. And what happens? They go out and preach everywhere by the power of the Spirit. And then it says, and the Lord worked with them. I love that. They go out preaching and the Lord worked with them. A lot of us say, oh, God, you got to do something with me, and then I'll go preach. Man, I'm a mess. Yeah, I'm not very spiritual. When I get more spiritual, then I'll go out and share what God has been doing. Yeah, I'll wait until God really works with me. They weren't waiting. They were going out, and while they were going, God was working with them. God was changing them as they went. This sounds like our mission and our vision, which is to experience and proclaim freedom in Jesus to the world, to one another. We experience it. And we proclaim it, and we proclaim it, and we experience it, and we continue to experience it. So we'll spend our time making much of Jesus, the beautiful one, the radiant one, the Savior who gave everything to set us free. In conclusion, we experience the glory of God to move us to mission, not to stay in the same place not to make a monument. We experience the glory of God to change us and transform us as we go out and we live as his people. So today I want to do something different for our response. 
They tell me this in church planting school. Don't keep doing the same thing over and over or everyone's going to get used to it. No, I'm just kidding. But we will. We're going to do something different today just so you don't get too used to how it is. We are going to have a response time. So if this is your first time with us, we like to always respond after the sermon. We leave time to respond. And usually we respond in communion and in prayer and in singing, in worship. And so today what I'd like to do is I'd like to start, we kind of reverse the order a little bit. So we'll start with some response time where Ben and the team is going to come up and they'll lead us. And we're going to have a response where I want to invite you, if you'd like, to not get prayer at the back, but to come forward to get prayer. (gasps) So scary. Then everyone will know I need prayer. Oh my goodness. I want to invite you to come, and we're going to have the prayer teams come up, and they'll be praying for people at the front. You can either sit at the front, or you can stand at the front, or you can kneel at the front, but I want to invite you to come and to respond in that way. And there's a few different um, invitations I'd like to make for people today. The first one is, some of you have not yet experienced the glory of God. And even when I say that, you think, that sounds really weird. What do you even mean by that? How could I experience the glory of God? And my invitation is that Jesus wants to reveal, give you a glimpse of his glory, an encounter, an experience with him, it, that you would sense him, you would feel him, you, he, he would change Was that you? How did you do that? Magic. That's when you know you're done, when your wife turns off the mic. Burn. Oh, my goodness. Just kidding. So the first invitation I'd like to make is, if you have never experienced the glory of God, and even that idea sounds weird to you, and you think, well, I kind of would like to encounter God. I'd like to meet him. I'd like him to show himself to me in a way that my heart could have an encounter with him, I'd like to invite you to come for prayer. And we'd like to pray that God would meet you. A second invitation I'd like to make is that some of you are sleeping. Some of you are sleeping. And you've been around a long time, and you're kind of sleepy. You're a little bit apathetic. Your spiritual life feels pretty sleepy. And Jesus wants to wake you so that you can behold his glory so that you can walk in the joy of being awake in the kingdom. And I'd like to make that invitation to you. I have experienced this many, many times, where God spoke to me actually through my daughter once. You're sleeping. (laughs) It's like, whoa. We sleep. We, We wake. We sleep. We need to be reminded. So if you feel like, man, that's me. I feel sleepy in my spiritual life. I want to invite you to come forward and to get prayer, or to, just to make that statement. Sometimes actually moving in a different way, like coming forward, is a, is a step we make to say, I want to wake up. I want to wake up, and so I'm going to do this little thing to speak to my own soul that we're going to wake up. We're going to walk in Jesus. And the third invitation I'd like to make is some of you are carrying a lot of shame, and some of you are carrying a lot of pride. And so you go back and forth between pride and shame. Lots of us do. And today, if you feel like that's you, I want to say Jesus wants to be your righteousness. He wants you to lay all that at the cross and experience him being the righteousness. And you walk in the freedom of knowing his grace covers you and is enough for you. And so we're going to, I'm going to pray and then we'll have the team come up. 
and they'll lead us in a song. And during that song, I want to invite you, if you feel like any of those apply to you, that you would come forward and you can either sit on a chair up here or you can kneel um, and just make a declarative statement to your own heart that you want to wake or that you want to experience God today. And then um, we'll go into a time of communion after. So Jesus, I invite you to come. God, I thank you that it is your desire. You said that um, as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And so it doesn't take much for us to turn and you're right there. And I invite you to come, Lord, and I ask that you would wake us. Lord, that we are, we're a sleepy people. And we need to be woken, and we can't even wake ourselves. When we're sleepy, we can't. We need you to come and do it. So would you come and wake our hearts? Would you um, tear the veil that holds us back from seeing your glory? And Lord, if there's those whose hearts are hungry to encounter you, God, would you meet them? I can't, I can't do that. I don't have a way to do that. I need you to come and do that, Lord. So would you come and would you meet us? Every heart that longs for you, every heart that's hungry for you, Lord, would you meet them? Jesus, and for those who are carrying shame or who are carrying pride, religious pride, like it's some kind of badge of honor, Jesus, would you meet us? And as we repent, as we turn those things over to you, would you meet us in grace, Jesus? I ask that you would free us in this moment to be able to respond with our body, to be able to walk forward and change our seat, to declare that to ourselves, Lord. Would you help us to do that? In Jesus' name.